You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We've looked at several passages of from the beginning of Isaiah already, and today we'll continue on through the chapters 2, 3, and into 4. And so we begin our reading at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. We'll read three sections, and the three sections, they correspond to the three points in the sermon, the idolatry of the people, the leadership of the people, and the women of the people. And so we read the word of God through the mouth of Isaiah, beginning at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low, and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled, and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And we turn forward to chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, where the Lord says, I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. And then we look forward to verses 16 through 4, verse 1. The Lord says the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the women, on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and the tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of a well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. Our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 4, the verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. 
And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem. Who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over all those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Sometimes I don't like to admit it, but it's true that I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan. I'm not the biggest fan in the world, but definitely a fan. And there was a time when I was 10 or 11 years old, and the Blue Jays were winning back-to-back championships, that things were great. Since then, however, things have been pretty tough for fans of the Toronto Blue Jays. This past year, if you follow the Blue Jays at all, if you have any idea of what's going on with them, then you'll know that this past year was characteristic of many years in the past. Optimism in the spring, hope, change, a new year, and then you'll find them at dead last in their division right now. This is a recurring theme year after year, but even though it's bleak for the Toronto Blue Jays, there's One thing good that comes out of every year, every season as they go from great expectations to dismal finish, and that's this, at least we know what the problem is. At least we know what went wrong. You can see that with the Blue Jays, you can see that many other places as well. You can see that in, of course, more significant things in life also. Consider if you would, a successful professional. Maybe he's an accountant or a lawyer or a salesman or a doctor. He neglects his family. Or he neglects his personal health for the sake of pursuing professional success, career success, and and achievement in his job. He leaves those things behind in pursuit of this other goal. And then one day... Everything comes crashing down around him. His wife says, enough's enough. Or the doctor looks at him and says, listen to me, something has to change. The message rings loud and clear. You, sir, have a problem. Or you can think of a crisis of leadership and I'm sure this isn't happening in the classrooms of any teachers in our congregation, but I've seen it happen in a classroom where a teacher just seems to give up. They're in charge, they're the teacher, but things are going badly, and instead of stepping in and establishing order, they step back and they let it go. They don't maintain order, they don't assert their authority, they don't act justly. And, and you know what happens, of course, when that, when that happens, It's chaos. Students don't learn. They're there to learn. They don't learn. 
The students aren't protected. The, the bullies rise in power. Those who get picked on get picked on more. It happens in classrooms when there's a crisis of leadership. It happens in boardrooms. It happens around the supper table. It happens around the consistory table. A crisis of leadership creates a disaster and has everyone asking, who is going to take charge here? Or consider a third scenario, if you would. In the face of a crisis of leadership in her own home, in her own marriage, in her own bed, a wife grasps for love and fulfillment that that was supposed, she thought, to come to her from her husband. But she's not getting it. And so she looks elsewhere. She improves her looks. She improves her clothes. She improves her smell. And at first she tells herself that it's to win back her husband. But the attention never comes from him. He's preoccupied and distracted with his with work or with other goals. But... She's pleased to, to find attention and affection does come from elsewhere. Handsome, strong, successful men take notice of her. They take notice of the clothes and the perfume and of the needs of the wife. And one particular relationship grows, grows into heart-to-heart talks, lingering hugs and affectionate words. And then one day, the hugs and the words lead on. And suddenly, after it's all over, there's the thought, what have I done? This is an affair. This is adultery. Ashamed and scared, the wife asks herself, how did it come to this? Sometimes... In life, everything seems to come crashing down around us. And sometimes, as in the accounts that we just considered, it's not everything coming crashing down around us in spite of us, but it's everything coming crashing down around us because of us. Because of the decisions that we made. Because of the path that we chose to follow. But in each case, in each of the cases that I listed, you will have heard that there was that moment, wasn't there? That moment of discovery. That moment of coming to terms and of realizing that you've got a problem. And when you have to admit, enough is enough. That's the moment that Isaiah hopes to lead the people of Judah to. And us, of course, as we read this passage toward, as he points them beyond their need, as he lays them out in those passages that we read in chapters 2 and 3, to the hope that they have in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we consider that God's judgment, as he lays out his judgment against his people and he shows them their problem, reveals their need. But in showing them their need, he's also showing them their hope. And we see that need in the idolatry carried on by the people and their their need for true worship. We see that need in the poor leadership that has taken over the people and their need for true, godly, 
leadership. And we see it finally in the need for their women to be holy and the holiness that they've lost, their need for holiness. So first of all, God's judgment with respect to the idolatry of his people shows their need for true faith and worship. And if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 2, you'll see this idolatry laid out very clearly before us. These people of Judah have a worship problem. They're worshiping the wrong God. Verse 6 in chapter 2. They're full of superstitions from the east, the gods of the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. They clasp hands with pagans. In verse 7, it's clear that they're putting their trust in material wealth. In verse 8, they're populating the holy land, God's holy land, with idols. So what Isaiah is showing here is the problem of the people with their idolatry and the judgment of God that is going to come upon them. Because they broke God's commandment. God had stated clearly to them, and we heard that again this morning, you shall have no other gods before me. God was going to punish them because they traded in the glory of the Almighty God for images made to look like man and beasts. And animals. You see, idolatry is worshiping something other than God. Idolatry is essentially finding something more beautiful and glorious than you find God to be. Idolatry is about glorifying something else but it's it's about more than just glorifying something else glorifying these gods of the babylonians or of the philistines but idolatry is about glorifying yourself isn't it in idolatry what we do is we we make something a reflection of ourself and then we worship it You find something that you're successful at. You make an idol of that. You say, that is the greatest thing in the world. That is what's most beautiful and glorious. And then you worship it. It, Just think of the statues. You've seen them in your history classes. You've seen them in museums. These statues of the Greeks. Of the Greek gods and goddesses. What do those statues look like? They look like people. They look like people. They're just reflections of those values that the Greeks thought were great. And yes, the people the Greeks thought were great themselves. And they made them into gods and they said, let's worship them. We do this today as well. If I think that I'm good at work, if I think that that work makes me feel good about myself, I find that I can get status and achievement in my job, then I make that into a god. I make a a reflection of that and I say, this is what's most important and beautiful and glorious. And I will worship that. So what's the problem with the people of Judah? They have a worship problem. They're worshiping the wrong thing. And the result of their problem will be judgment because there's only one God in this world. And that's the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he is a jealous God. He doesn't like having other gods around. He doesn't tolerate that. 
He's jealous. He's the only one worthy of worship. And so the people will be punished. Unless, unless, of course, they turn from their pride. And this is why Isaiah is showing them their idolatry. He's saying, turn from your idolatry. See the idolatry that's prevalent throughout the land. See where this is taking you. God is going to judge you for this. Now turn from it. But here's the problem. Here's the thing. You can tell someone who has a false god to turn from it, but they won't. If they keep thinking that that thing is more beautiful and glorious than God, you will worship that which you find to be most beautiful and most glorious in this world. If you aren't in awe of the beauty of God, then you are not going to worship him. So what does God do in response to this? The people of is of, of Judah have this worship problem. They're finding these idols and they're finding these things about themselves to be too glorious and beautiful. So what does God do? He glorifies himself. He exalts himself. He makes himself beautiful and he reveals himself. He, he, he seeks to capture their heart, to draw them to see his glory and his beauty. He intervenes into the darkness of their idolatry and he shines the light of his glory. He shows himself to be beautiful and glorious. Turn to Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the people of Israel. Who is this person, this branch of the Lord? Well, as other passages make clear, this person is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, out of the stump of Jesse, out of the cut-off house of David, will grow a righteous, spirit-filled branch. He is Jesus Christ. But this image of a branch is a, is a confounding one, confusing one. Because the branch itself is just something humble. It's just a branch. The, the, the picture, you've probably seen this around. The picture is one that you see all the time. If you go camping in BC, you see one of these great Douglas firs. And it's been cut off. Or it's fallen over. And there's just a stump there. It looks to be a dead stump. But then you see this one tiny, wispy little branch, this little twig growing up out of it. That's the picture that Isaiah has here of the stump of Jesse that's been cut off, but this branch that's beautiful and glorious growing out of it. It looks small, it looks weak, it's humble, but it will grow to become very powerful. Jesus came to this earth humbly, and unassuming. Yet for those who recognized it, Jesus displayed the glory and the beauty of God. As he walked on this earth, Jesus was maligned and slandered by some, while others who could see bowed down before him in worship. Jesus died on the cross as an ashamed criminal, or he should have been ashamed. In the eyes of everyone around. And yet when he died, the centurion that was standing there said, Surely this is the Son of God. 
when he rose from the dead, the most significant event in the history of this world, rising from the dead, victorious over the grave, nobody knew. Nobody knew about it. It was humble and unassuming. And yet, in that one act, God defeated death and vindicated his own righteousness. Jesus Christ, the branch, the first fruits of the land, through his humiliation and suffering and death, displays the incredible love and enduring faithfulness and mighty power and burning glory of God. And through Jesus Christ, God draws the hearts of his people back to himself. When you see that glory of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ and in the works that he's accomplished, then your idols and those things that you find beautiful and glorious start to look pretty stupid and useless. And you begin again to worship God. And so Isaiah shows the people their need, their need to worship God. He goes on to show them about their poor leadership. And if you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 3, you see this laid out beginning at verse 4 where we started to read where these people really do have a leadership problem. God says, I'll make boys their officials, mere children will govern them. Isaiah is probably commenting on the the situation that already exists in Judah. In verse 5, he says that without proper leadership, everything's going to fall apart underneath them. There'll be no justice, no order, and the people will experience strife. You suppress, women rule, the poor suffer. And you you can see this kind of thing played out all the time, can't you? When there's a leadership crisis. Just think of what you read every single day in your newspapers about what's going on in Egypt. When in 2011, they kicked their leader out, there was this vacuum. And what happened underneath that vacuum of leadership? Chaos, strife, injustice. And so that leads the people in verse 6 to become desperate for a leader. They grab someone. He has a cloak. He looks like maybe he has a little bit of money. They grab him and say, you be our leader. He's got no other qualifications. This man shouldn't lead, but they have no one else. They're desperate. Why is there this leadership crisis in Judah? Why is there this mess that would have been all too clear to the people that Isaiah was prophesying to? It was because of their leaders, the leaders that had already abdicated their responsibility. In verse 14, We read that God enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. And he says, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. It's the leaders of God's people who bear this responsibility. It's not the youths who are oppressing that are to blame. It's not the women filling this void who are to blame. It's the leaders who have given up their leadership. You see, the leaders of God's people then, as now, always bear a tremendous responsibility. A tremendous responsibility. But if the leadership is bowing down to false gods, 
and full of pride in themselves, then how are these leaders going to lead God's people? There's this great quote from Spurgeon, which brings us into the context of the household of a father with his children. And he quotes that famous proverb, train up a child in the way that he should go. And then Spurgeon adds, but be sure that you go on the same way. That is, you can't, you can't hope to lead people in paths of righteousness if you yourself are walking on a path of wickedness. If you aren't worshiping the Lord, you're not going to inspire anyone else to follow you in worshiping the Lord. So how does God respond to this power, this leadership vacuum? Well, God promises the branch. The branch will be a beautiful and glorious leader. And as we noted from chapter 11, this leader will be from David's own house, the greater king than, than David himself, Jesus Christ. Through Christ's leadership, God's people will, experience, will have an experience like Israel in the wilderness, where Israel had, had nothing in the wilderness, but they had God. And because they had God, they had all that they needed. Where God himself leaded and protected his people. He was always there with him and they saw him day after day in the, in the cloud of smoke and in the pillar of fire. That's what Isaiah mentions in chapter four here. The Lord will create over the, over Mount Zion a cloud of smoke and a glow, glowing, and a glow of flaming fire by night, just like in the wilderness. God watching over his people. God present with his people. And as our great leader, this is what Jesus Christ does. He leads us into the love and the protection of our heavenly father. He's the leader greater than Moses who guides us through our earthly sojourn on our way to the promised land. He's the one who is always with us, directing us and guiding us. And when we follow him, we are safe. He's the good shepherd who leads us along paths of righteousness so that we don't even have to fear the valley of the shadow of death. He is the good shepherd that when danger comes and our lives are at stake, he lays down his life for his sheep. He gives up himself to save us. With Jesus Christ as our head, we have no leadership crisis. It's when we turn away from him that things start to fall apart. And Isaiah describes things falling apart in our last point when he speaks about the women. And what he says there about the women reveals the need, their need for holiness. It seems that these women have, have stepped into the leadership and the leadership void created by the leaders in Israel. And in filling that, they become proud in, the, in themselves as well. We read in chapter 3 verse 16 that the women of Zion are haughty. They're proud. They exalt themselves. They, they think much of themselves and they, they add to their self-image through all sorts of outward adornment. The outward adornment makes them, makes them feel good about themselves and also communicates to others how powerful they are. And they, as they, they walk along, they want everybody to see their power and they use their power. They, they flirt with their eyes, Isaiah says. They exercise the power of their sexuality over those weak and sinful men that populate Judah. 
Ironically, though, while they are in every way trying to bring glory to themselves, it's only an outward. It's only a show, right? It's just the adornment. It's, it's just the earrings and the perfume and everything else. Inwardly, there's no glory. Inwardly, increasingly, there's only shame. And we read in 4 verse 1 that God will bring shame upon them. At one point, they will, they will grab hold of a man and say, take away our disgrace. So their adornment, their pride, their over-sexualization will become their shame. And brothers and sisters, don't we see this all the time? Isn't this the story that we see playing out over and over and over, especially in our entertainment industry, where, where the beautiful women are sucked in, and then they play the game for a while, having all the power in the world, only to be chewed up and spit out by the same industry that once brought them in, broken and ashamed. You see that over and over again, sadly. What do these women lack? What does their lack of holiness show that they need? Well, Isaiah makes very clear what these women lack is a man. Well, doesn't that sound chauvinistic and sexist? These sinful women lack a man, but it's true. They grab hold of this man. They know they need a man. They they need a righteous husband. They need someone who is going to make them holy. Instead, they've gone to false husbands, to men who make them dirty, not clean, to men who take in lust, not give in love. These women need a new man. And what does God promise to these women? He promises a new man. He promises them a husband, a husband to make them clean, the beautiful and glorious branch. The branch, as we read in chapter 4, verse 4, who will wash away the filth of these women. The branch who will not take selfishly from this woman as the other men have done, but the one who will give himself up for them, going through judgment and fire on their behalf. Do you see the description of Jesus Christ here? Do you see the description of of Jesus Christ? Think of Ephesians 5, that famous passage where Paul speaks about the love of Christ for his church. You see that love right here coming from the branch of the Lord. He's the husband who gives up his life for his wife and sanctifies her. He's the husband who goes through judgment and fire for his wife. Christ is the husband whose love cleanses and restores Women who have sinned. Things were bad in Judah. And they were getting worse. How bad are things for you? Do you see yourself in that man who who pursues work as an idol? Who follows that for fulfillment and glory? Do you feel caught in a a crisis of leadership in your home or in your church, at your work, in your culture? Have you grasped for the power of beauty and sex only to feel shamed and dirty at the end? Do you recognize elements of all of these things? In yourself. 
Brothers and sisters, that moment of realizing your sin is a special moment. It's a moment of grace. It's a moment of change. It's a time of repenting and returning and restoring. It's a moment to look up and to behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.